this session, we discuss the practices of integrating neurobiology with narrative therapy in the contemporary political landscape of this work. Welcome to the AFTA podcast. I am Naveed Zamani and I am your host. In this session, I'll be speaking with Dr. Aaron Kirkwood. Dr. Aaron D. Kirkwood is a narrative couple therapist and the owner of Collaborative Relationship Therapy in Athens, Georgia. He recently completed his doctorate in marriage and family therapy with a specialization in couples therapy, having written his dissertation on the application of neuronarrative practices in couple therapy. He is interested in continuing to explore ways interpersonal neurobiology can be integrated into work with couples in a way that remains respectful to the origins of narrative therapy. He hopes to demonstrate that neuronarrative couple therapy is not a regression, but a faithful evolution of narrative practice. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. As always, I'd like to start with the question, what's been drawing your attention in your work these days? Well, first of all, Naveed, thanks for, for having me. and. Uh... Uh, having this conversation today. Pleasure's on mine. Yeah. Um, well, as you as you just said, having recently completed my dissertation on um, neuronarrative couples therapy, uh, that's thank you. Yeah, that's still fresh on my mind and um, still something that I that I'm interested in, and so I continue to wonder about ways that I can integrate some of the ideas um, from interpersonal neurobiology with my narrative work in a way that that's respectful and and um, again doesn't place those ideas in a uh, in an expert position but just sort of frames um, my clients experiences yeah, I appreciate that yeah I know there's kind of been a um an interest or a movement in the family therapy world in kind of considering the role of neuroscience. That's at least my understanding or read of the field. Um, mm -hmm. And again, congratulations on your dissertation. It sounds like this was the focus of your dissertation. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to. So I was I was really captured by um, uh, Jeff Zimmerman's uh, work in, in his, his book, um, Neuronarrative Therapy from yeah. 2018. And um, that's a good book. And yeah, it, it really, so, you know, my, in my clinical work, I, I found that the problem, uh, whatever it might be, particularly with couples would, would show up and, um, we, we would discuss in, in our meetings about their preferences and, and ways to get, you know, we'd externalize, give it a name and talk about ways that they would prefer to respond to one another or respond when the problem shows up and, and, you know, come up with these great ideas and these great plans. And then, you know, they'd go, they'd go home or they'd go out of my office and, you know, a week or two later, they would come back and report that the problem kind of showed back up in full force, you know, despite having made all these wonderful plans and, and, and really felt heard and listened to, 
in our meetings. And so it just felt like there was something that I was lacking, something that, that was lacking in the work that um, wasn't as effective as I would hope uh, for these couples. And so that's when I discovered the, the neuro narrative work, I went, it was, it was like a light bulb moment. Like, Oh, okay. These emotions, this affect is, is sort of working in concert with the problem um, and, and working against the couple's best, best interest. Yeah. Right. I appreciate that. I, I had a very similar experience in my own private practice context, which I'll, I can share later if it makes sense, but I will say that I'm drawn to some of the words you're using because you're, and, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, that you're meeting with couples, you're going through this like really uh, refined narrative process, kind of utilizing interventions around externalization and identifying preferences and uh, some of the movements that they might make towards uh -huh. those preferences. And then you're saying they're coming up with great ideas and plans and things that tend to lean linguistic and maybe in other words, cognitive. Yeah. And then you're saying they would leave and then this force would occur and it'd come back you said the problem comes back full force. Yeah. And is there some way that you're conceptualizing the force as a neurobiological force, if that's not too oversimplistic of a description? Well, based on, so based on my understanding, right, uh, of, of kind of what's happening neuro, you know, neurobiologically, you know, within, mm -hmm. within the brain, um, you know, it feels like the, the, you know, whatever emotion or affect, if it's fear, if it's anger, um, it has a way of overriding their, you know, the, the, the intellectual or the cognitive uh, process that we're, we've, we've been going through. Um, of course, I didn't understand that for many years as I was doing this work. Yeah. Um, you know, it just, if you're just looking at it, like you said, linguistically or cognitively, you're going, I don't understand what's happening here. You, you all have told me you have this preference not to behave this way or not to be caught up in this pattern as this interaction. We've said how we want to interrupt it, uh, you know, uh, and yet here it is, you know, it, 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 it comes back and you're, you know, the full force is, is that I would notice um, as we were talking about, even when there was an exception, oh, wow, you know, you guys were telling me that you, you know, we, we haven't met for seven days and only on one of those days did the problem show up in that way. Wow, that's really great. And, and um, you know, that would sometimes resonate, but at the same time, you know, one or the other person would, would go, yeah, but, mm. um, <laughs> you know, this problem is just here again and it feels intractable and it feels... Like there, there's no hope. Um, so, you know, the full force is like the, the force of the emotion, the force of the affect really, you know, shows back up and it's strong and it's overriding. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. Sorry. It does. It does. I appreciate that. So in your dissertation, you were, can you say a little bit more about like your dissertation kind of journey and what you came to discover as you were exploring the intersection of narrative and neurobiology? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, well, it, you know, it was quite a journey because this was during COVID. And, and so, um, you know, it felt like I'm, I'm diabetic. And so, you know, I was not comfortable meeting with, with clients in person. 
Um, so I shifted all my work to, to online. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, there was a decrease in my, in my client load. And so my, my hope was to sort of develop a, uh, what Zimmerman had laid down as neuronarrative therapy to sort of refine that for working with couples. Um, and sort of to, to shorten the story, you know, there was some, there was some rearrangement and some, some, um, you know, some refinement of, of the process and what it, what it ultimately looked like, you know, in my opinion, um, you know, I was looking to talk with subject matter experts, uh, in the field, you know, narrative therapists who maybe had some exposure to, um, interpersonal neurobiology and some who didn't and you kind of get their feedback and then refine this into getting feedback from who I see as the ultimate experts, which would be the clients. Yeah. And that was sort of the, you know, sort of the pie in the sky uh, idea. Um, unfortunately, working by myself, you know, um, not having access to uh, a group of, of, you know, ready, you know, I'm not in a, in a traditional university setting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's not this sort of, pool of, of ready-made um, subjects, if you will. Um, not not a word that I prefer to use in my research, but uh, yeah, that's sort of the traditional language. Yeah. And so, you know, what I ended up doing is is looking at the literature and sort of using that as the, as the, the basis, the foundation of the research and seeing what, what people were saying um, and then sort of constructing a, a sort of a guide or a, or a user's manual to um, neuronarrative couple therapy and then presenting that to subject matter experts and saying, hey, what's your feedback on this? What, you um, know, um, and that's that was the process. Interesting. So uh, you didn't use this word, but am I kind of correct in understanding that you developed in some way some sort of model for how to do this work? Or is that yeah, too strong of a I struggled with the yeah, I, I struggled with that myself. Like, am I calling this a model? And so I, I landed on the word approach. You know, I, I like that idea of approach. I, I don't feel that it's refined enough. Um, perhaps it's probably, you know, some of that is just maybe some self doubt of like, you know, who am I to put forth a model? Uh, mm-hmm. you know, that might be part of it as well. But but generally speaking, you know, I, I landed on the idea of an of calling it a, an approach. Um, you know, uh, I I wouldn't necessarily call it a model, but, uh, maybe, maybe one day it develops into that. Yeah. I'm really appreciating, um, what you're saying here, Aaron, and I'm drawn to your work in particular because of some similar experiences I had. I remember, um, when I was in my private practice and I was encountering a lot of couples and I have a lot, I have history in domestic violence work. So Mm -hmm. couples that ended up finding me were folks dealing with, uh, I'll, I'll use the language of interpersonal violence to kind of nod towards the family therapy world. Um, yeah. So yeah, they're struggling with IPV. There's not a lot of available, well, there's, there is research and models available for how to approach, you know, conjoint therapy with IPV, but uh, you got to be pretty intentional and seek it out. Um, that said, I found myself in some conversations that were privileging linguistic understandings or structures of conversation and I particularly remember uh, positioning couples to be in uh, listening practices as 
the other's telling a story. It was kind of like a small witnessing reflective practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that it wasn't about the story, but rather how their like physiology would be moving and responding to the story. And I, I distinctly remember one client, one couple, the, 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 the female identifying partner stopping the interview process. I was interviewing her uh, ex-partner at the time. And she said, I can't handle this. This is the narrative that he shares every time to everyone to make himself seem really good and okay. And it's just kind of almost traumatic to hear him talk about it again in the setting. And so in that moment, I was like, oh, okay, whatever, what's coming up for her is connected to some deep histories and is like presenting really almost physically in some ways, at least uh, by my observation. And so, yeah, I felt stuck and trapped and Jeff Zimmerman's articles were interesting and... Um, I guess I'm curious because I found my own route to how to think about um, uh, integrating narrative work with the physiological components. And I'm curious kind of what you've discovered. Yeah. Like how, how have you learned to manage those moments? You know, I think to your point, recognizing it is the first sort of, sort of step. Right. And, and I, I did, I don't know that I had a good, <laughs> framework for that a good a good language for that before coming across the 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 you know interpersonal neurobiology or, or the you know the neuro narrative right so um the the some of the language that that i arrived at and i sort of de just sort of developed in my in my own work um you know i i call it emotional residue you know i, I don't know where or when but this just kind of popped out and, and working with clients and it seems to resonate with them um you know i i got some feedback during my process that 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 word might be um uh, a little bit uh, problematic for some traditional narrative therapist why? You know, because it kind of call. Well, it sort of harkens back to you know maybe some psychoanalytic or or, or some type of you know um, you know we're we're sort of uncovering you know some some um, emotional or or some um, You know, it, it's it it again. It just harkens back to that time of of like, here I'm an expert and I'm going to uncover this, um, right. or you know whatever. Like um, perhaps constructing a fairly modernist perspective of emotions, and then that emotions in a static form can leave a residue on someone's being. Rather yeah. Than... Well, so like some philosophical. I think it's problem. specifically yeah some some you know language you know it was a, it was a sort of a language a language right. thing. Um, which I which I respect, and then I but then the other feedback was, um, well, if this is your experience, and and this is, um, you know, this is seems like an accurate description, you know, go with it. So, so I've decided to to go with it and, and stick with it in, in my work. But yes, yeah, that idea that, you know, it, it gives context to the person's experience, right? And I think just as much as there is a cultural context that we look at, you know, if we're looking through a feminist lens, you know, or, or a, an anti-colonial lens that gives context to the work and it gives understanding to the work with clients. And I think, you know, using <clears throat> an emotional or an affective understanding or a neurobiological understanding 
you know, it gives context to the work um, and, and the client's experience. And so um, and the idea of emotional residue, it's like, to your point, you, you, were, you were talking about the couple that that you work with. And, and for this, you know, this female identifying partner, there's some it's not just what's happening in the moment. It's what's happening in this relationship. It's what's happening in previous relationships. Um, it's it's how this person's affected by living in the in the social context that they live in. You know, all of these things impact the affect and the emotion that this person is experiencing in, in that moment. That's my understanding. At least. So in some ways, emotional residue captures the effective. Uh, well, it's hard to not use the word residue. It's such a good word in this context. <laughs> but the kind of the lingering effective effects. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think the residue word for me, um, I worked in food service for, for many years and, and, you know, you always have to wash the dishes and, and, uh, eventually, you know, as, as a manager, you go back behind people and you see if sometimes they didn't do a great job of washing the dishes and there'd be like a residue, like a, like, you know, an oily residue and like a film yeah. and yeah, like a film. And, and so <clears throat> the reason that that, that image sort of, comes up for me is is it it becomes a a film through which we see our, our current experience if that makes sense right so the emotional residue is like something that impacts and influences our current experience but it's based on past experiences whether it's in your current relationship past relationships etc so would it be a correct assumption of mine that through your research and kind of scholarship you've your practices shifted a bit too to follow some of those understandings Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I had a really sort of salient moment with a with a couple that I had had worked with over time and, and kind of was working with at the time that I was discovering, if you will, uh, first discovering neuronarrative practices. And so, you know, I remember having a feeling of frustration when, again, the problem would show back up or, or you know, we'd, we'd be in a meeting and I, you know, uh, one person would be talking about their experience and it would seem sort of incongruent, if, if you will, to the interactions that they were having or, you know, or it seemed like that the, the emotional, um, the emotional uh, experience that they were having just didn't seem necessarily in proportion. Of course, this is based on my judgment uh, at, the, at the time and whatnot. Um, but after having learned about some of these, uh, you know, uh, interpersonal, uh, interpersonal neurobiological ideas, it, it, I became more, more patient with my clients, right? And when, when the problem and when the emotions would show up, it helped to, me to have a context, you know, to, again, understand what's going on, feel less frustrated. So in that way, it changed my sort of self of therapist work, uh, which is an interesting and unexpected uh, thing. Yeah, that is, that is fascinating. So in some ways, as you're attending to the effective qualities of the work in front of you, you're also reflexively then attending to your own effective experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of some of Sue Ellen Hampkins work around uh, mutual attunement, if you're familiar with some of her work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, we're yeah. into our clients and tune into ourselves as we're, uh, yeah, this attunement idea that I'm, I'm appreciating. Yeah. 
So as you're sharing some of this stuff and <clears throat> I get a sense that you're in some ways uh, kind of negotiating a broader political positioning that your work is in. Because um, I'm noticing even in the bio, there's a way that you're speaking to, uh, if I could just reread this piece in your bio, it said, you're, you're hoping to demonstrate that neuronarrative couples therapy is not a regression, but a faithful evolutionary practice. Mm-hmm. In reading between the lines there, the assumption being that there are perspectives that this is a regression. Right. That you're yeah, to- I mean, I've read some, you know, again, during during the research, read some um, writings by some some people in the field, some some um, prominent names in the field who, who um, feel that that this is a regression that feel that this is, you know, a, um, you know, it's colonizing or, or it's setting the therapist up as the expert, um, or that it, 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 that it somehow doesn't, um, align with the values that, that Michael White and David Epson, uh, you know, um, put forth in the late eighties, early nineties. Right. If you don't mind me asking, how do you respond to some of those um, critiques, I suppose, or concerns? Right. Yeah. Um, well, I want you know, I, I want to first pause and 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 ensure that that the work, um, you know, that what they're saying is is not true, right? Uh, in my opinion, before I say. Um, well, I want to, I want to evaluate the veracity of that claim, right? Is, is it true that this is a regression? Is it true that this is, um, they claim, yeah, moving away from, from the foundation of narrative therapy. And I would, I respond after some thought and consideration that <clears throat> I don't think it's, it's, you know, back to what I said, it, it's just giving context to what's happening it's giving context to our clients lived experience um and it's a way of us understanding that lived experience as as clinicians right and i don't think it's you know i would equate it again to looking at it through a a feminist lens or a social justice lens or an anti-colonial lens these are lenses that we use to understand the broader context um and and, in my opinion um using interpersonal neurobiology right dan siegel says this is not a model this is not a theory it's it's a it's a way of understanding um and so i think that's what it is it's a way of understanding um what's happening for for our clients um how how the emotions how the affect um and the experiences impact what what's happening both in the moment and, and historically. Yeah. And I don't know, if, I, I, I guess I want to invite you to edit me here because I'm going to like take some liberties with some of the theoretical language that would mm-hmm. be fair to situate the ways you're talking about neurobiology and its role as like maybe like one landscape of experience to consider in the stories of clients as they're sharing it. Like that maybe it's something that we thread through as part of a broader contextual understanding about uh, what's going on and kind of getting into a meta dialogue about um, therapy and the conversations that we're uh, assuming are useful for clients 
Is that a fair yeah. representation uh, of that? I, I think that's fair. I think, um, it, yeah, it's part of the, the picture. It's, uh, you know, I, I conceptualized this approach as, you know, if you, if you thought, if you think of therapy and I hope that, you know, this doesn't smack too close to sort of the Gottman idea of the, the sound relationship house. But I, I think of, you know, this neuro narrative of therapy as if, if you conceptualize it as a house, um, narrative therapy is the foundation. You know, it's all built upon yeah. narrative therapy and you have to have a solid foundation to have a strong house. Um, the, where I where I situate interpersonal neurobiology in that is it's sort of the the windows if you will it provides a view inward and outward so it provides a view inward to the client's inner experiences um, but it's also you know it's also a way of conceptualizing what it looks like for the client having had their experiences existing in their historical context looking out to the relationship to the even the therapy process. Um, and so that's how I that's how I situate the the interpersonal biology within the larger context of the of the model, if if you will. I love that metaphor. That's awesome. So, okay, would it be okay? So I want you to feel comfortable pushing back on this because it's kind of mm -hmm. an annoying suggestion. Just for the sake okay. of the conversation, would it be okay if I just positioned as one of those fundamentalists? narrative zealots who's interested in fidelity to the original works of Michael White and David Epson in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, it can be a helpful uh, um, exercise. So my first question in that position is like, in some ways, the neurobiology stuff does position us with kind of, it, it, it's susceptible to modernist understandings of how we work and operate in the, the mix right. of our lives and souls right how does your work resist that or acknowledge that potential if that question right is. yeah well it, it's certain certainly true that it assumes that um that our clients have a, a brain and a and a nervous system you know <laughs> um right uh i think that's a fair assumption to make um, you know, I, I think we, we have to make assumptions, don't we? We have to make assumptions that therapy is helpful, that, that working with couples is helpful. Um, you know, we have to, um, I mean, we have to assume that, that narrative therapy is helpful, right? So, so you make certain sort of grounding, um, assumptions right and i think it's a again i think it's a fair assumption that that i've not yet met with a with a client that i'm aware of who doesn't have a brain and a nervous system and, and you know and so these seem to be universal you know i hate to to make uh, assumptions right but the, the they seem to be universal regardless of cultural or or um you know um background that that this is a part of our experience, right? Um, um, so I don't know. Perhaps that's controversial to say, but no. Well, the controversial is what's interesting. I mean, <laughs> you, but what I'm hearing you say, Aaron, is that the 
the assumptions you're holding are nestled into some broader assumptions about how that you hold about how humans operate and are. This idea of like the role of the brain in the central nervous system, and that while you're connected to narrative and maybe broadly constructionist principles of the relational experiences that we have and how we're um, yeah in meaning making processes constantly. Yeah. That we also can't ignore that that meaning making process is pretty significantly contributed by our this thing called a brain and nervous system. Yeah, that's that's my assumption. And again, you know, I don't know that that making that assumption that people have a brain, they have a nervous system, that we we have some information about how that operates. It seems to be shared uh, between between people. Um, is any different than again assuming that um, that we should, in, you know, have the values of anti-colonialism, you know, anti-patriarchy. Uh, um, you know, these are, I think, assumptions that uh, a narrative therapist would make. I, I don't, yeah. So, well, if I could push a little bit further on this, is that okay? Yeah, uh, I'm having fun. If you are, <laughs> no, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I'm game. I'm trying to craft a question here that brings me a little bit closer to how it is that you're pushing back on the expert role where you have this neurobiology knowledge that's kind of crafted in Western English speaking, mm -hmm. I speak to prefer the United States at least here, uh, yeah. maybe studied on kind of the, the white industrialized educated group of uh, college students. So you have right. a body of knowledge that develops in a particular corridor of society. Yeah. And then has history of being applied elsewhere. But okay. your work is relational, right? So you're sitting with couples and then you're bringing in this landscape of neurobiology, if I could use that language. Mm -hmm. so how is it that you're in negotiating the potential to be the expert? And like, how do you I don't know. I guess I'm trying to figure out how is it that like clients come to this knowledge with you in a collaborative manner? Right. Or right. does it necessarily have to be invited by you? And is it like a knowledge base that you hold and ethically it's like, no, it's pretty important that this comes in. And if it's from me, so be it. Yeah. Well, I, it depends on the context, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, if a couple comes to me and say, well, we're interested in doing premarital counseling, um, and, you know, we just like to talk about how to be better communicators or, you know, whatever they're bringing in. Yeah. It, it may not be necessary that 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 is part of the conversation, you know. But when you have a, a, a couple who comes in and they they, they say, well, um, you know, we'd like to be better at, at conflict resolution. You know, we seem to find ourselves in, in conflict um, often and and. Uh, it's getting in the way of us, and this is not there. They wouldn't language it this way, but that's how I think of it. It's getting in the way of us having the type of relationship that we want to have, um, you know. And then in that case, when that effect and that emotion shows up, then um, it might be helpful to. <clears throat> I guess what you know what I, what I've noticed oftentimes is. As much as I get frustrated and, and perplexed with the problem showing back up, um, I mean, the couples are living it, right? So okay. they, they definitely are, are experiencing that. And so to be able to say, 
um, you know, could it be that this is what's happening for you, right? You know, you, you, you can intellectually know that you don't want to respond this way, but you find yourself responding this way. Could it be that this emotion, this, this what's going on, um, and is, is overriding your, your best intentions, you know? Um, and so that's, you know, I, I bring that and, and I ask that question and, um, so yeah, I guess I, I do introduce it in that way, um, in a way of asking, hey, could this be what's happening? Or, or um, to your point, is it is it conceivable that um, another couple from a different uh, you know cultural background might operate differently? You know, is it is it possible that that what we're thinking of as as sort of facts, you know, or truth based in, in biology and, and research, is it possible that that's contextual to the, the, the folks who've been studied? Um, you know, I, I'll, yeah, I'll acknowledge it that, that that's possible. And I'm certainly open to hearing about other people's experiences. You know? Well, and to be fair, uh, at least my understanding is I don't know anyone in the neuroscience world that claims that we know anything about the brain. Right. <laughs> so, right. Well, that that's still a mystery, isn't it? You know what? You know, there's a brain. You know, we, there's there's electrical signals that go back and forth, but ultimately, how those electrical signals come to be, um, Our you know, ideas and thoughts, and you know, that that still seems to be a bit of a, a bit of a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I appreciate that because in some ways. Well, now I guess I'm positioning outside of the position I originally took. But <laughs> the assumption is that like you would bring in concrete, factual, hard knowledge to apply, but perhaps in the ethic of neuroscience, at least the neuroscientists I've listened to, it's pretty loose as it is. Mm-hmm. It's considerations on on how physiology, affect, emotions are influencing. Um, stories we hold about each other and ourselves and hopes for the future. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's attractive about particularly interpersonal neurobiology and how, you know, Dan Siegel presents it is that, is that it's, you know, it's a relational process. It's not just a, you know, it's not just a matter of physical wiring, so to speak. It's a relational process. We come to understand our minds through interactions with with the people around us yeah. and our interactions with our own ideas and thoughts. So if I can ask, it's a little bit of a shift in our conversation, if that's okay. I, mm-hmm. I'm aware that you were doing this dissertation through COVID and you were mentioning all the online stuff. How does this work apply online? Um, like, are you doing much work via Zoom with couples? Yeah, I... Um... I moved my practice, you know, completely online in, in 2020, mm-hmm. and um, I continued, um, I, I've continued to to do it that way. And you know, I, I like to check in with with people to make sure. I guess not as much as I as I did, you know, the past few years of just checking. In, hey, you know, is this helpful? You know, meeting this way is does this seem helpful or, um, and and 
you know, the feedback that I've gotten from my clients is yes, you know, um, we appreciate not having to get a babysitter or, you know, this allows us to meet at five o'clock, you know, after work instead of later, maybe at six when we'd have to commute or, um, yeah. How does the neurobiology stuff, uh, is it affected by being online in any way that you've noticed or does it, of course it's a contextual question, but. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I mean, obviously we, well, I'll say I, I'll, I'll speak from my experience. There is maybe some information that you miss when you only see somebody from sort of the, the, the chest up, right? You know, the, 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 the subtle um, signs of, you know, I'm thinking of a couple that, that I worked with that would come in and sit sort of turned away from one another, you know? Um, and, and as our work progressed, there was a, there was a, a time when they were turned towards each other, their, their feet almost touching. And, and that was really like, you know, it's a small thing, but it, uh, it's, it, but at the same time, it's a big thing because it really represents a, you know, a comfortability with one another, I guess, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm making an assumption here based on, again, affect and neurobiology and, and yeah. you know, just general understandings. But I think it represents there's probably a, a an instinctual, you know, sense of like, I feel safe with this person. And so I'm, I'm willing to to turn towards it. Yeah. Right? And that's something that can be, you know, <clears throat> when you have two people who have to squeeze into a small space to be seen on on camera together, I think it does impact to your point, the, the body language, which is maybe an indicator of the, of what's going on emotionally. So there probably, you know, there probably is some effect of meeting couples in that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm particularly curious too, because there's some research um, and some of my own experiences that indicates that some of the online couples work, especially if they're not in the same room can support conjoint therapy for high conflict or yeah. IPV type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, again, you know, we're, we're making an assumptions here. So I have cats. I have lots of cats. I, I won't say how many, because if I do a guy in a white coat will show up and haul me away, but I have cats uh, <laughs> and dogs. But you know, when, when, when cats, <clears throat> when you have two cats in the house that are, that are about to fight, right. They're staring each other down. You don't leave them in that space together, right. You remove them. Hmm. So, so that, you know, physiologically they can, they can sort of calm down, kind of reset. Right. Um, and so to your point, yeah, with, with, with couples, and this is, you know, in the, uh, in the Gottman's work is when you, when you can physiologically, you know, kind of, kind of calm down. Yeah. Um, I think the work is, is more uh, effective. Yeah. Or it can be. Yeah. Yeah, I really love what you're saying here, Aaron, and I'm kind of keeping an eye on the time here, but um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm appreciating that you're putting this work out there, and I know that it's, you said there's context where it's controversial, and there's folks that have different ideas, and uh, ultimately I think that's a critical dialogue. Um, and it's just interesting to think, too, about how couples therapy, at least in my experience, seems to kind of be set up for... Uh, like kind of like middle class communication problem type stuff, and the work mm-hmm. that you're offering uh, kind of gives some access, perhaps, into those more high conflict where language is strained, but there's efforts or or there's hopes 
towards res resolution of some sort. Um, yeah, and I'm thinking about some of the writing, at least, that I've done about, around Michael White's perspectives on Cobbles counseling. Um, that I, I understood, at least, his writing to have some concerns around the centrality of communication issues. Mm -hmm. and the primary problem conceptualization for couples. Um, right. Yeah, and you know, with AI coming around now and uh, taking over, right? Because Michael White was talking about how post-industrial revolution we had become information processing machines. We don't need our physical labor anymore. But now yeah. AI has kind of taken our information processing away. And so what's left is maybe our emotions and our affect. Maybe that's what distinguishes us from the knowledge constructed by computers and stuff. So I don't know, it feels like your work is right in a particularly contemporary place as our society is being questioned. And I will say yeah. that this is my own piece. Like when you put into chat GPT or some other things, ways to produce narrative, you could ask you to make like a narrative curriculum or produce narrative questions and it really produces some nice stuff. So it also speaks to the technification of narrative therapy of that knowledge over the last 40 years. And yeah. I personally am invested in work that you're doing others that's kind of just poking holes and, um, yeah, expanding the territory necessarily. Yeah. Appreciate that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, what you said there with the idea that we could, we can input or ask, you know, an AI to create a, you know, we can ask it to write a textbook about narrative therapy and it will probably look very similar to some of the textbooks that I read in my program growing up, right? Because, growing up coming up <laughs> yeah. uh, MFT baby. Um, yeah um, you know what what I observed is you know if you look at the written work of say Michael White or, or you know any of the other luminaries in the field um, it is very you know uh, it's about language and, and ideas but there's a lack of discussing e emotion and the role of emotion and affect and maybe that was because of the time. Um, but then if you watch Michael White's work, if you observe his work, it's incredibly affective, right? He's, he's, he's very attuned to what's going on with the clients. It's just that that was not necessarily, you know, always in the written work. So, um, to your point, yeah, the, the AI would miss the, um, of course it could, I suppose it could, it could spit that out, you know, and talk about emotion, but it, but it certainly apparently can't experience it. Um, so. Yeah, those AIs there. I've been messing around with them, and they can do quite a quite a skillful analysis. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But again, you know, could you could you observe, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a client and notice those those you know em emotions and and uh, right. understand, you know, the the emotion? Right? I don't know. Maybe. Um, I don't think so right now. Maybe maybe some not, not yet. Not not there I'm yet. thinking about okay. some of the models that try to generate music with AI. And right now they mm -hmm. can doodle, but they can't create melodies or things that humans because music and melody requires rhythm. It's an emotional right. quality. Well yeah, there's a there's a um, you know, now you're speaking my language, right? There's a there's a <clears throat> the the small imperfections right that that come with human uh creation of, of music right um 
I, I think we can hear emotion through music, but then there's the little things like, you know, and, and AI can probably sort of simulate this, but you know, the, the rasp of the fingers across a guitar string. Right. right. Um, and it's not going to be the same the next time you hear that piece of music. Right. So, so when you, when you, um, when you just plug something into a computer, you can, you can sort of have an approximation, but there's, it's hard to get the, the human imperfection. Yeah, and emotion. Yeah, I love that. Well, Dr. Kirkwood, thank you. I know I've been calling you Aaron, but I want to like honor your <laughs> dissertation process and all the hard work you did for that and uh, where you're at. So, thank you so much for being with us. If folks um, listening want to kind of engage with you or your work, or uh, do you have a suggestion for how they might find you? Yeah, well, I'm not really out there on, on social media in any in any huge way. I like I said, I just finished my, my dissertation. Um, I'm in sort of the process of, of hopefully finding a, a teaching position, and so that's kind of been where my um, mind is at. I've got some some personal family things that have been happening the last couple of months um, that are that have just uh, taken all of my my time and emotions and and. Of course, yeah, energy. Um, so um, I do have my professional email, uh, which is just my name, Aaron Kirkwood, LMFT at gmail.com. If, if someone wanted to reach out and, and inquire, you know, that's probably the best way to get in touch. Like I said, I don't really have a social media presence uh, per se. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Aaron, and, you know, wishing you all the best with the family stuff, Hope, hoping that uh, things. Uh, kind of make space for you. So. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks again for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great conversation. Thanks.